What gives you superpowers in creating habits is the ability to feel successful, even with your tiniest, tiny successes. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Famous Failures. I'm your host, Ozan Morol. Today's guest on the show is BJ Fogg. BJ is a behavioral scientist with deep experience in innovation and teaching. At Stanford University, he runs the Behavior Design Lab and also teaches his models and methods in graduate seminars. On the industry side, he trains innovators to use his work so they can create solutions that influence behavior. His focus areas include health, financial well-being, learning, productivity, and more. BJ has a brand new book that came out today on December 31st, 2019. It is called Tiny Habits, The Small Changes That Change Everything. You can learn more about the book and get your copy at tinyhabits.com. In the episode, BJ and I cover quite a bit of territory. We talk about how Greek philosophy inspired BJ to study persuasive technology why BJ's early theories on the future of technology earned him poor grades and puzzled looks, what common modern practice BJ believes will be seen as low-status behavior in the near future, how you can adopt new behaviors even when you lack the motivation to change, the three strategies that make up BJ's tiny habits behavioral change method. We talk about how BJ learned to get over failure and keep trying and experimenting with new things. How overcoming compulsive snacking taught BJ empathy toward others. And finally, how you can use the tiny habits to untangle your own unwanted behaviors. Before I play the interview, I wanted to let you know that my new book, Think Like a Rocket Scientist, Simple Strategies That You Can Use to Make Giant Leaps in Work and Life, is now available for pre-order. You can get it by heading over to rocketsciencebook.com. You can also just go on Amazon and search Think Like a Rocket Scientist and it will come up. I've been ecstatic about the early reviews of the book. The book was named a must-read by Susan Cain. Endlessly Fascinating by Daniel Pink and Bursting with Practical Insights by Adam Grant. If you pre-order the book, you'll get digital access to the book to read on your favorite device within seven days of your pre-order. That means you can start reading it months before the book is released to the public. You'll also get pre-order bonuses worth at least 10 times the cost of the book. And you can check out the bonuses and find the order links over at rocketsciencebook.com. You'll also be supporting a good cause. I'm donating 100% of my royalties from the pre-order sales up to $10,000 to Charity Water, which is on a mission to bring clean water to those in need. Please enjoy my conversation with BJ Fogg, and thank you, as always, for listening. BJ, welcome to the show. Ozan, thank you for inviting me. I'm really excited to be speaking with you, and I'd love to, to talk about how you ended up doing the work that you are doing now. Um, one of the interesting things, reading about you online, I saw you mentioned on your website that over 25 years ago, you were reading Aristotle's rhetoric and realized that someday computers would be designed to influence humans. Can you take us back to that moment and, and walk us through what went through your mind? Yeah, yeah. And, and today I'm all about positive behavior change, but I'm going to rewind even before that. I grew up in, a, in California. I grew up in a home and in a, a culture that, a religious culture that was all about serving others. 
And so that was just wired into me from the beginning. You know, you are here to serve others. That's how that's how you be happy, and that's you know, that, that's what it's about. Right. And so as I was uh, reading lots of things, and in, in this case, I was reading Aristotle and other parts of rhetoric about influence and behavior. I got the insight. I thought someday computers can help people change their behavior for the better. And I got really interested in that. And then that's what I did my doctoral work on. I did a series of experiments about how computers can influence our attitudes and behaviors. And in my dissertation, they let me do 10 pages of storyboards where I was describing, this was 1996 when I was writing these storyboards. Like, here's this device that's going to help Sue get more fit, and it's going to talk to her doctor, and there's going to be virtual characters, and there's going to be friends that help her. And Sue's on this journey, and all along, you know, digital technology is going to help persuade her to be happier and healthier. And that to me just seemed like, wow, this is going to be great. Well, that vision in part has come to pass, but then there's been a lot of downsides about how technology has persuaded or influenced people. That's for sure. So I think any, any power like that has, you know, good sides and dark sides for sure. When you were doing these storyboards, you said the the year was 1997. <laughs> yeah. Well, I did the storyboards in 1996. The, the, the dissertation, you know, was shipped and completed and signed off in 1997. And at the time when I was looking at this and hypothesis, people thought I was kind of crazy. In fact, I was in a, a marketing, graduate marketing course, and the kind of famous marketing instructor said, design an experiment about, you know, that uses marketing. And I designed it around how computers would be used for marketing. And he gave me like a C minus. And he's like, no, <laughs> this will never happen. And I'm like, yeah, it's gonna. So I, I just revised it and I resubmitted it. I said, yeah, I still got like a B or a B plus or something, not a great grade. And he's like, no, 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 no. You're just being totally unrealistic. So, <laughs> so uh, yeah, I, I was considered the crazy person for a while, for sure. Yeah, you were way ahead of your uh, of your time there. And one of the other things that really struck me, this was a, a book that you published in 2007 and, and this is and just to to, to situate our, our listeners here, the iPhone was released in 2007. And so when you were doing these storyboards, this was 11 years before the iPhone was released. And then and then the book you wrote, uh, Mobile Persuasion, was also before the iPhone launch. And I'm just going to read an excerpt here because it, it turned out to be so prescient. You wrote, I believe that mobile phones will soon become the most important platform for changing human behavior. Within 15 years, no other medium, TV, word of mouth, the web, will be more effective at changing what we humans believe and what we do. We are on the cusp of a persuasion revolution. Think down the road 15 years and imagine how this will work. Through mobile technology, insurance companies will motivate us to exercise. Governments will advocate energy conservation. Charities will persuade us to donate time suitors will win the hearts of their beloveds. Um, and again, this is before the release of the iPhone, such a prescient observation. How did you settle on on those conclusions so early on? Once you get that you know, technology will be portable and we'll carry around these little computers and whatever we call them, phones or whatnot, then you just kind of put two and two together. And it's not that big a leap to see this was going to happen. Now, at the time, I remember sharing that first at a conference. And I got up and I had a slide and I was like, people are going to laugh me out of the room. And nobody really responded. And that was a big, bold claim. That, like, how did that come together? Well, just my studies on how computers could influence attitudes and behaviors. And I was studying 
the experiments were with people sitting down with a desktop computer. And in some cases, it was a next computer back in the 90s, which was it was voice interaction with computers, which at the time was like dismissed. It's like, oh, we'll never talk to computers. So these voice experiments you're doing, you know, forget about those. <laughs> so a lot of that has come to pass. But even so, even if you're articulating this vision, like this device in my uh, dissertation, these 10 pages of storyboards, I called that team fit. The fact that I was able to articulate that vision and explain how this could work, I'm not sure that made it happen any faster. I think I was an optimist by saying, hey, this can happen. I thought that would accelerate the research and development and all of that around it. It didn't. I'm not sure it really did. It's kind of a hard lesson to learn that innovation has happens kind of in its own time. If you're ahead of the curve, uh, that's nice. But it's like trying to surf where there's no waves. So you're, you, best, you essentially run out of energy. You got to be surfing where the waves are. And that's timing. That's right place, right time. And I learned, I've learned that lesson, I hate to say over and over <laughs> in different contexts. But now I really, really get it that even if you can foresee or predict what's going to happen, that doesn't mean you can ship a team fit in 1997 or go talk to Kaiser Permanente in 2007 about doing you know, interventions through mobile phones because the timing's not right. So a lot of pieces have to come together. Yeah, that makes sense. So being too early can be worse than being a little late. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I was also interested to see your recent prediction. This was on Twitter for 2020, which you mentioned, which you called it a, a movement to be post-digital. You said, we will start to realize that being chained to your mobile phone is a low status behavior similar to smoking. What led you to that prediction? Yeah, there was a time in the mid nineties where my dad gave me like this Motorola flip phone, like this mobile phone, really early one. And I remember opening up the package and looking at it and immediately my response was not, yay, I have a phone. It was like, oh no, now my dad can <laughs> always reach me. He can always find me. There's no, I'm not gonna have any freedom anymore. So I think from the beginning, I was quite suspicious about always being reachable. And even at that time, I anticipated there will come a day that it will be a luxury to be off the grid and to be unreachable. That will be the luxury. And that the people who are, don't have that luxury will always be reachable and you can always disturb them, whereas what you know, high status or people with money or people with influence will be able to say, no, nope, you can't reach me for a week or I'm off the radar or you can't reach me during these hours. So being at a dinner party on your phone rather than the party, I think that's clearly more and more going to be a low status behavior and something where people are like, ah, really so sorry to, for that. This person can't be present with us. That they're addicted or uh, that word's not quite right. Really so sorry this person can't be fully present here at the dinner party and for whatever reason they're, they need to be on their mobile phone. Or on the beach, I see people a lot. I'm in Maui about half the time and I see people on the beach, beautiful, beautiful beach and they're, on, they're looking at their phone. And in fact, last night I was at a great place in South Maui and I was playing my little flute as I was watching the sun go down. And just really enjoying the moment, just, you know, sitting on the sand and the waves are coming in. And to me, that's like 
just amazing. But then there were two women that were so interested in getting selfies and being in the water, which is like, okay, they're trying to get a picture of themselves to probably look good to their friends on Instagram and not really, I think, enjoying the moment. Maybe they were, maybe I'm being too judgmental, but I, I do think it's accurate. So I, maybe I'm op, too optimistic, but I, I do think that our culture will evolve and will understand that using your mobile phone at those times when you could be connecting with others or you could be connecting with nature, that's not a high status behavior. That is indicative of you're not in control of your life. Yeah, I think your analysis is spot on there. And it is interesting to see how this, the item, the smartphone shifted since 2007 to being Mm -hmm. a a symbol of luxury to now it's on its way, perhaps, um, it's not going to happen right away, to eventually becoming a low status behavior. And and I do think there is a trend in that direction. Like, you know, two high profile books published, Cal Newport's Digital Minimalism and then Nireal's Indistractable that I think that these are the beginnings of a of, of a movement uh, that might one day make cell phone use, at least in public, you know, when you're out at dinner, as you said, or you're watching a sunset. A friend of mine recently told a story of they went to the Louvre in, in Paris and, and uh, there's a line to see the Mona Lisa. You get about 30 seconds to take a look at it and, and you're in a group of about 10 people. And he said him and his, his wife, they were admiring the painting. And then the rest of the people in the group were just taking selfies <laughs> and using their 30 <laughs> seconds to take selfies as opposed to actually looking at the painting. So, yes. So, so I, I do think, I, I do think you, you're onto something. Yeah, I know, Zen. Part of tweeting that was to hasten this sense and this movement was to, and I gave it a name and I'm not sure the label's the right name, but putting it out there and the resonance with it was big. It was really big. And so that uh, not only did I get it out there and gave it a label and the label's not right, but helping people start thinking in this new way. And, you know, one thing I learned, I mean, going back to this uh, notion of being too far ahead of the curve is not that helpful. That is absolutely true. But if you can be just ahead of it, like just when it's at the inflection point and help that inflection point happen, then that's great. Then Then you can get traction and get resonance and get momentum. And that's where you want to be, I think, as an innovator, because being too far ahead of the curve is just frustration. Now, you eventually shifted away from persuasive tech to behavior design. What's the difference between those two concepts for those listeners who are not familiar with them? And what prompted your your shift? Yeah, I named both of the domains. And so persuasive technology I coined and I coined the term in like 1995 or 1996, and it's about computers, digital technology being used to influence attitudes and behaviors. Behavior design is a phrase that my lab coined in 2010 when we realized that the work we were doing was no longer had anything to do with technology. We were interested in health habits and positive financial behaviors and so on. In fact, I just pulled up the email the other day in January of 2011, where we documented a whole bunch of the different names to name what we were doing. And of those, we picked behavior design and then changed the name of my lab in January of 2011 to the behavior design lab. And behavior design is a set of models around how human behavior works and a set of methods of how to 
create behaviors or help people have positive behaviors. And it has nothing to do with technology per se. They're both about influencing behavior, but one really has the framing of technology and what technology can do, whereas behavior design has nothing to do with the technology piece. Right. And I assume technology can be involved in behavior design, but it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. Like the tiny habits method. Uh, So my book, Tiny Habits, explains that. The tiny habits, you know, creating, using the tiny habits method to create tiny habits has nothing to do with technology. In fact, it's not at all part of the method. If, If you're using technology to create habits, you're not doing the tiny habits method. So let's talk about the tiny habits method. What, what exactly is it and how did it come about? Well, it's a super simple and effective way to create habits. And it came about as I was looking at one of my models about behavior that I call the fog behavior model. I was looking at my own model. There's a graphical version uh, that has two coordinates and a curved line. And I was looking at that and I saw in the bottom right hand corner, this area where the behavior would happen when prompted, even if motivation is low, but behavior needed to be super simple. So what I looked at, I thought, wow, if the new habit is super, super easy to do, then my level of motivation doesn't matter very much. Wow, that's interesting because uh, motivation has been assumed to be the key to behavior change. But if it's really easy, then motivation kind of is not an issue. And so building off of that, I started playing around with my own habits really, really simple ones like flossing one tooth and doing two push-ups and setting out my vitamins. And I found I could create habits really, really fast and really easily. And I was like, wow. And then I, and then in about 2011, that was the year I started teaching it to other people. So this coincides with the shift in my lab toward behavior design. So tiny habits, I consider a method in behavior design to create new habits that's a systematic approach. It's really easy and it can be really fun too. That, that makes sense. And, um, and it, it does call into question and there's still so much being written about this, about how to get motivated when you're not in the mood and so on and so forth, which is really, really hard to do. But as you know, if the habit you're trying to form is easy, if you can rig the game so you can win, right. then it makes it much easier for you to actually develop the habit. Um, so, so just going back to the example you mentioned, which is, let's say, doing two push-ups. The goal there is to set the bar low so you can, you can start very small. And then how do you, you know, if your goal, for example, eventually is to say to go to the gym regularly, how does the connection happen between beginning with two push-ups, say, after you brush your teeth every morning to being a regular gym goer? One very, very helpful way to think about habits is like you have this garden of different plants of different sizes. You have grass, you have flowers, you have trees, and you have habits of different sizes. Some will start tiny and stay tiny, like flossing your teeth. And some habits like putting on your walking shoes will grow bigger over time naturally, just like starting a small tree and it grows really big. And so in the tiny habits method, you start everything small. Everything starts really, really tiny. And then you find a good place for it in your life. Just like in a garden, if you wanted to plant a fig tree or a tomato plant or some kind of flower, it's like, where does this fit well in my garden? And that's what you do with habits. You scale them way back, start on small and say, where does this fit naturally? And then you allow it to grow. And some things will grow bigger naturally and some things will just like blades of grass will be happy the way they are. So there's really, I mean, to your question, 
There's two ways that tiny can transform you. One is that the, the new habits you have, they'll propagate and they'll create other habits. And so think of that like Bermuda grass. Once you get that going, it propagates and it expands, but it doesn't grow like a palm tree. So that's one way that starting tiny can have a transformative effect. Just like, wow, now I have this big lawn of grass. The other way is the habit will grow. Now, not all habits will grow huge. I mean, flossing your teeth doesn't grow huge, just like a flower doesn't grow to be the size of a palm tree. And the key with growing a bigger habit is start it small, find where you've got to place it where it can grow bigger. Just like if I planted a palm tree right next to the house, there's a point where it's not going to thrive there. It's going to interfere with the house and the root system and so on. So what you're looking for is how do I design the habit effectively? And if I happen to place it in the wrong part of my day, like, oh, I thought I was going to walk every morning for an hour. Guess what? The habit cannot expand because I don't have an hour in the morning. You look for another place where it can start small and then it can expand. Uh, if your aspiration's an hour, then you, you look for a, a time in your life where it can expand to be an hour. You now coached tens of thousands of people on the on the tiny habits method. What sets apart the really successful participants from those who don't who don't who don't succeed uh, where do well, you see the, the points of failure i'll give you two answers both of them are accurate but one is uh, maybe a little snarky uh the first answer a little snarky the ones who succeed are the ones who follow the directions <laughs> <laughs> the ones who don't follow the directions it's like guess what you're not doing the tiny habits let me give you an example so my own father He's, he's a big fan of my work, and I'm, I talk to him about it a lot. And he's like, okay, great. I'm going to create a new habit. I'm going to do 10 push-ups every morning. And I'm like, dad, that's not tiny. And he's like, oh, that's what I want to do. I'm going to do 10 push-ups. I'm like, dad, that's not tiny enough. And guess what? It didn't work. Yeah. Well, the good news is he's created a whole bunch of other habits successfully. On the flip side, so that's not that practical an answer. Maybe it is. But a, a more specific answer is that people... Oh, there's so many great things I could share with you, but I'll share one. What gives you superpowers in creating habits is the ability to feel successful, even with your tiniest, tiny successes. So, Because it's the feeling, it's the emotion of success that makes a behavior become a habit. It's not repetition. It is emotion that creates a habit. So if you are able to floss one tooth and say, good for me, and really feel that emotion, or do two push-ups and go, you rock, and feel that emotion, you will wire in those habits quickly. And so that ability to self-reinforce through emotion on demand is the thing that gives you superpowers for creating habits. Yeah, and I can I can totally see that because as I as you were describing it, you know, if I if I was say doing the floss one tooth habit, I probably wouldn't be able to feel the emotion of success. For me, at least, that 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 didn't strike me as something that I would feel emotionally successful yeah. with. But <laughs> but but I think for some of the other tiny habits that then like say doing you know ten push ups as soon as you wake up in the morning or two push ups even as soon as you wake up in the morning, I feel more comfortable feeling an emotional success. And I don't necessarily know why that is, but. But to me, there was a difference between the two. And so I suppose it could also depend on the on the person. Is there something that people can do to generate that that feeling of, of, of success? Absolutely. And so in the tiny habits method, we call that celebration. 
And a celebration is anything you can do to fire off a positive emotion. Sometimes, like as you're doing push-ups, you might feel your muscles flexing and go, man, I'm going to get stronger, right? So it's directly connected to the behavior. Other things might be as you floss one tooth, maybe that does, is not meaningful, but you think, oh, I'm the kind of person who is changing. I'm creating a new habit. So it's right. not about the flossing, but it's about, wow, I'm learning to create habits. In other types of celebrations, people will visualize, let's say somebody who's eating a healthy snack, like she's eating cauliflower for for an afternoon snack. And she might envision her granddaughter smiling at her and saying, good job, grandma. Mm. Right. So there's these, and some people do little dances or they give themselves a high five and people need to explore and find what works for them. And then they take that and use it. What, what, one way to understand what your natural celebration is, is let's imagine you're watching a football game and at the very last minute, your team kicks a field goal and they win. What do you do in that moment? Do you raise your fist up and go, yay? Do you jump around? Do you, uh, whatever you do is a natural celebration for you. So take that and then use that as a hack for your emotion to wire in habits that you want. So you're hacking your emotion through that, but that's part of the tiny habits method. There's basically three hacks. You make the behavior super, super tiny. You find where it fits. What does it come after? We talked about that. And in tiny habits, we call that anchoring. Like you're tying this new habit to something stable, this anchor in your life. And then the third hack is that firing off of that emotion on demand to wire it into your brain. I love that. Um, and I love how you reframed, that really struck a chord with me, reframe the, the success, not necessarily as I flossed a tooth today, but about I am changing my behavior I'm changing my habits. I'm the, I'm the kind of person who can do that. So I think that sort of zooming out a little bit, at least for me, that really resonated with me, can make it more of a success or at least can, can make me feel like more of a success story than, than otherwise. So, so I really like that reframing. And in Tiny Habits, there's a chapter just on that. And we talk about, you know, not everybody can go, yeah, way to go, BJ, and feel good about it. So I unpack the different ways and the different ways you can reframe so you can access that emotion on demand. I'd love to change gears a little bit where um, maybe have about five minutes left here and uh, and talk about failure. Um, and before we started recording, you mentioned that you were thinking through your failures in your life as you were, <laughs> as you were uh, getting ready I for the pages. interview. Yes. I and, pages in front of me here. And, and a word that you use <laughs> to describe the, the prep work stuck out to me. You described it as therapeutic. Why was it therapeutic? Well, I love what you're doing. And because I know from the outside, well, people look at what I'm doing, whatever, and they think it's just, everything just comes perfectly all the time. And it's like, you have no idea how many failures. You only see the successes. You don't see the failures and they still happen. You know, and that's what gets publicized are the successes. So I love the, the premise of what you're doing, but writing things down just made me go, yeah, that I was really, really, I couldn't overcome that. That was a real problem. That was a massive failure. I was massively humiliated here. And it was just kind of interesting to put those things down. So let's dive in and, and see uh, see what you came up with. And so, so thinking or looking over that list in front of you, what um, sticks out to you as, say, one, we can talk about a valuable failure and what makes it valuable and then maybe a, a failure that was particularly hard for you. 
Well, let's start with when I was 12. And this one, I circled this one. This one's really significant. So like I said, I grew up in a community and a culture, a religious community, and music was a big part of that. And so I was going to perform for the congregation, about 350 people, really close friends, this piece. And I get up there and I hadn't practiced and I hadn't practiced. And I, and I get up there in front of the congregation and I completely blow it. And I start over and I blow it again. I can't even get through the piece. And I am totally humiliated. And I walk off the stage and I sit down in the pew and I just put my head in my hands. And I was like, my life is over. I mean, I was a 12-year-old kid and, and it was humiliating. But guess what? After the service, a few people came over and said, well, you tried. And the next week I went back to church and it was over with. Nobody ever talked. I mean, and what I learned from that is as hard as it is significant and devastating as that felt, life goes on and it, the world didn't stop. You know, and and that really helped me with future failures because it's like, okay, this feels really bad right now, but I'm going to get over it and people are going to get over it and life goes on. So, you know, don't sweat it. Uh, So that's helped a lot. One of the one of the behavior failures as an adult was my addiction to popcorn. Now, I wanted to write about this in Tiny Habits, but as we did it, and it was a serious addiction, Osan. It was. But what my editor said, no, BJ, people have these life-threatening addictions, and you're trivializing it by talking about popcorn as an addiction. But it was a serious problem. I gained lots of weight. I would make a mess around the house, cooking it and eating it. It was on and on. And tried for years to unwind that habit. And it was tough. I finally got on top of it, but it took a variety of attempts But during that time period when I was struggling with my popcorn addiction, and I know people listening are probably laughing at this, but it it was this this thing that was irresistible. And it gave me a lot more empathy for people who have other kinds of addictions or compulsions. And that, I think, was a failure for years. I tried lots of ways to unwind that habit, finally got on top of it. And now, fast forward to today, I have no temptation with popcorn, and I absolutely avoid it. I don't even eat one single piece because I'm so afraid of backsliding. Sure. And uh, if, if we can pause a, a moment just there, because so Tiny Habits is about building positive habits. And we didn't talk, I, I suppose, about unwinding negative ones. And so with respect to your popcorn addiction, what finally worked? Well, in my book, Tiny Habits, I have a whole chapter on how to stop unwanted behaviors. Mm. And that's probably the chapter, Ozen, that I am the most excited about sharing. So I break new ground, giving people methods of how to, and it's not break bad habits. I talk about untangling bad habits or unwinding them. It's a process over time. And you can absolutely use the tiny habits method to untangle bad habits. So for example, this didn't actually happen, but you could use tiny habits this way. So let's say I go to a party. Well, actually, this has happened. I go to a party and there's popcorn there and the host brings popcorn over and I, I just, the tiny habit would be, no thanks, I'm not eating popcorn. So just that statement is a tiny habit. When somebody offers you alcohol or somebody offers you nacho chips at a table or bread at a restaurant, all you have to say is, no thanks, I'm not drinking tonight or no thanks, I don't want bread on my table. And in four seconds, You've redesigned your environment so you don't have the popcorn or alcohol or chips in front of you. And then you think, good for me. I'm sticking to my game plan. You reinforce that. And so you can find these very tiny behaviors you do at the right moment that help you stick to your game plan. 
That's great. So it's essentially the same methodology, just applied to a different set of habits. Yeah. And the one of the, I think, significant things in the chapter in Tiny Habits on this is understanding that these things that we call bad habits are really a tangle of habits. And let's take smoking, for example. It's not just one habit. People might smoke in the morning when they first wake up, on their commute to work, during their lunch break, and so on. And what you do is you look at that tangle of habits that you call smoking or you know, bad snacking, and you pick the easiest one and you unwind that one from your life. And then you pick the next easiest. You don't go for the hardest one, just like in a big tangled rope. You don't go over the center. You go for the easiest one and you untangle that. And by doing that, by doing the easiest ones and unwinding those step by step, then it helps you resolve the entire tangle. Excellent. Well, BJ, this was uh, so much fun. Thank you so much for coming on the show and and sharing your methodology with us as well as your failures. If people wanna, <laughs> if people wanna learn more about you and more about the Tiny Habits book, where can they go? Tinyhabits.com is about that method, and my work more generally at bjfogman.com. Excellent. Thank you so much again, BJ. Thank you so much. Hi, everyone. Thanks for listening. Two things before you take off. First, if you don't want to miss out on future episodes of Famous Failures, please subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you're listening on and be sure to leave a review on iTunes or Google Play. Second, if you'd like to join thousands of others who receive a short email from me each Thursday with a list of articles, books, tools, quotes, and other gems that help you discover how extraordinary thinking produces extraordinary results, you can text my first name, which is Ozan, that's spelled O-Z-A-N, to 345-345. So once again, that's my first name, Ozan, O-Z-A-N, to 345-345. Or if you're in front of your computer, you can head over to ozanvarol.com and drop your email address. If you act now, you'll also get a free ebook called The Contrarian Handbook, Eight Principles to Innovate Your Thinking. As always, thank you for listening and see you next time.